0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Limitless Grid Podcast. In today's episode, we have Kaysen Crane, an entrepreneur, endurance athlete, and mountaineer who has climbed all seven summits.
1: We are diving into everything from running marathons to Kaysen's experience on the reality TV show, The Race to Survive, and also learning how we started a seven-figure company from scratch during COVID.
0: So grab some snacks and here is Kaysen Crane. Hey Kaysen, welcome to the Limitless Grid Podcast.
2: Thank you. I'm excited. I'm excited to be back uh, on Limitless Grit.
0: So you were my first guest. I think it was like eight years ago. And last time <laughs> last time we talked, I believe you were still in school. You hadn't graduated yet. And like, what has happened in the last eight years? Fill us in.
2: Oh my gosh. Where to start? You're right. Wow. <laughs> eight years ago. Now I feel... I didn't even realize it was that long ago. Yeah. So when we spoke eight years ago, I had, I was in school. I had just climbed the seven summits uh, a year or two prior, uh, raising money for suicide prevention services for LGBTQ youth, climbing Mount Everest, climbing the rest of the seven summits, uh, for that cause. And then I started school and there was a whole other set of challenges awaiting me, social challenges, academic challenges, a whole new Everest, so to speak. But none of it could come close to the challenge from the last three years, which was starting my own business. So for the last three years, I have been, I've, I started, I founded and, and own and run a coffee business called Explorer Cold Brew. Explorer obviously rooted in my own love of exploring the world and exploring different coffees. And that has been a, a crazy adventure. So I did finish school. I worked in consulting for a little while, and now I run a business. In addition to all that, I've... I've I try to find time to uh to go on adventures with my family or with my husband. I got married. Oh my gosh. See, there's so many things. I I was (laughs) like, I I got married two years ago, which was amazing. Congratulations.
1: Um, Congratulations.
2: And you know, the funny thing is, so I mean, you all are married.
0: A month two months ago. Yeah, we got married two months ago.
2: Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. I didn't realize it was that recent. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This, so this is, this is basically your honeymoon hanging out with me, yeah. on Brick, <laughs> obviously. Um, well, I don't know if you all have found this, but I mean, I am personally a competitive person. Mm-hmm. I think like I'm a striver. I'm always trying to push myself competitive. I think sometimes gets a bad rap. It's not necessarily like competitive against somebody else. I'm competitive in that. I want to push myself. And I think one thing that I really, really appreciate about my relationship with my husband is that, despite both of us being very driven people, we are not competitive like with each against each other at all. there's really no I, I, even like and that's that's not a given I would say, and I feel very grateful that um Honestly, without even really having to think about it, we can just celebrate each other's successes. And I'm very proud of him because one of the things that uh, that actually I got him into, because he was never a runner. He had never run more than five or 10 miles in his life when we met. So I got him into running. And this past Saturday, he ran a three-hour and eight-minute marathon. So oh, 7, 10-minute wow. mile pace for 26.2 miles, crushed it he dropped his best time by he, dro- he set a new personal record for himself by 22 minutes and so I'm so happy for him he uh I think it's an amazing achievement and he he definitely he wants to hit sub 3 sub 3 next year sometime
0: wow <laughs> way to go friend that's amazing yeah. yeah after our last um conversation i got really fascinated with running and you had done like marathons and ultra marathons. And I started researching and I was like, okay, let me try it. Like, how hard can it be? But then (laughs) after running for more than 10 miles, I was like, this is the hardest thing. Like, I don't know how people do Ironman triathlon and all of these like races. So like, and also I'm fascinated with your whole family. Your mom is a runner, like your whole family is a runner. And how did you guys like get started?
2: It definitely is all my mother's fault. She's the original, uh, the original crazy one in the family who started doing 5k runs, then 10ks, then half marathons, then marathons then ultra marathons, then triathlons and half Ironman triathlons and Ironman triathlons and crazy adventures. So it's, it's really her fault because she wanted company and she had five (laughs) kids who would do whatever she, whatever she wanted. Um, Well, sometimes she had to force us, but five kids who ultimately knew that she was the boss. Uh, And I think, you know, you mentioned that it was the hardest thing you've done. I think one thing that I'm really grateful for in learning from my mother and in her influence on me is the hardest thing you've ever done is the thing you're doing. Does that make sense? Like... That 10-mile that run is the hardest thing you've done until you do the next thing. And by, doing, by taking it one step at a time, by doing a, a marathon or a half marathon or a 10-mile run, whatever it is, by pushing yourself to do it, all of, us, all of a sudden, you've opened up the possibility of taking on something harder than that. By accomplishing something, you sort of definitionally expand that comfort zone. you you just stretch out a little bit further and a little bit further and so for me i have had the the benefit of being raised by a mother and a family who uh she was obsessed with having us push ourselves out of our comfort zone a little bit more every day so for me it's almost second nature but i promise you you will always feel like the thing you're doing is the hardest thing you've done because you will continue to push yourself a little further. You'll always go a little further. You'll always do something. Once you've accomplished something, you'll naturally seek out another thing. And then all of a sudden you'll be doing Ironmans or you'll be doing ultra marathons and you'll be like, Oh, this is so hard. But when you stop and look back at where you started, it'll blow your mind.
0: Uh, Um, Okay. I have a question though. You have done Everest. You have done like, seven summit, which is really hard. And you've done all these races. And when I was doing my marathon, there were times where it was really hard to take that next step. I just had to force myself. And you were in situations where if you didn't take that next step, you would die. So in those situations, what do you tell yourself?
2: Honestly, those are the easier situations. The it's It's, it's sort of the inverse of what you might think instead of uh, the, the pressure and the intensity of those real world stakes, and it doesn't have to be death. I mean, that is obviously the most extreme, but even for example, let's take an Ironman, your first Ironman race is going to be your easiest one. Here's why. Well, to be clear, it's not easy. <laughs> it's never easy, but but psychologically, it'll be easier than you think. Certainly easier than your second one because you haven't done it before and you know that there's this social and uh, emotional cachet of being an Iron Man. So there's this strong incentive to keep going. I mean, obviously as as you said, the even more extreme would be like if you if you stop there's death like that that's the most extreme, but it's a little bit too more, but I don't want to focus on that so let's let's think about the Iron Man example. So that first Iron Man, you've got that strong incentive to finish. it actually makes it easier because as hard as it is, you know that there's this big accomplishment on the other end. Then you do your second Iron Man, and it is so hard because you're like why am I doing this? <laughs> like, why did I decide I did this once and then decided I would do it again? And I'm already an Iron Man. Like I've, I already know I can do it and all my friends know I can do it too. Why am I doing this? And I think though it's harder when you're not in those super high pressure, intense life or death situations, it's in those less intense situations situations that you discover your real inner strength. That's where you have to dig deepest to find that motivation to keep going. It's like in your, when you're in the marathon, when you're in the race, as hard as it is to keep going, it's probably easier than when you're on that 18 mile training run and you're like, Oh, do I really need to do an 18 mile training run? But you somehow find a way. And I would say that when people do those long training runs, it's a lot more about the mental strength of knowing that they pushed themselves to get through that when they didn't need to than it is about actually physically having your legs run 18 miles.
0: Wow. You're so inspiring.
2: Well, what's your next adventure? Tell me, like, what are you going to sign up for after we have this conversation? Let's start brainstorming.
0: Oh, I would, I think I'll do another marathon, even if I no, I shouldn't, um, but we're getting, like, so we're legally married, but we're getting married in India in November, so after the wedding, that's when I think we'll, like, plan another adventure.
2: Yeah. That, I mean, planning a wedding celebration, that is its own endurance challenge.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yep.
2: So that's amazing. Well, how's the, how's the wedding planning going? I mean, it, are you, how are you able to handle that and work and stay calm. I mean, that, that is truly a challenge of, of its own.
0: It's not easy, but at one point you're just like, all right, as long as people who love us are going to be there and have fun. And as long as we just like go with a mindset that it's just a day of celebration with everyone that you love. And, um, yeah, I think I'm at a point where like, as long as there's food, people (laughs) that I love are there, like it's going to be fine. How was your wedding planning?
2: It was uh, it was easier than I expected. I think for me, I had one mental shift that um, was very helpful early on, uh, which was that I went into it thinking this is our day, like my day and my husband's day, like this is our special day, because that's what you hear. That's like what the with the media to like oh this, and I think I evolved my mindset to be. Uh, actually, it's it's not actually about, it's about us, but it's not really for us. I think for me, it became apparent that it was most special, as special as it was to me, it was most special to, for example, my parents and to my in-laws. And I think when you shift the mindset to thinking of it, not just as something for you, but also something for them, for them to get the opportunity to celebrate and show their love, it makes the, the people management side of it a little bit more, uh, a little bit easier. Um, Yeah. Like I have friends who are like, oh, I don't think we're going to get married ever. Like, we just don't want that. And I was like, totally hear you, but consider the other people in your lives. (laughs) Consider your parents, right? Consider your, your partner's parents. Like before, like that's totally fine if you have said you don't want to get married, but or if you don't want to have a wedding celebration. But I, I think just I hope that folks, when they think about it, they also are factoring in how meaningful or not it might be to the, the that that generation that raised them.
0: Wow. That's totally. beautiful.
1: Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, we we are we, we kinda had the similar situation as well that this uh celebration, it's it's a family event mm-hmm. as opposed to just us two.
2: Yeah. I mean, and I think as, so my mother, unfortunately, is sick, uh, very sick. And one of the constraints around the planning for the wedding was wanting to do it in a time frame that like allowed us to actually plan a wedding, but also sensitive to the fact that we weren't sure how her health would be, especially the further out you go. And I think my mother's Illness actually was helpful in in allowing me to achieve that realization because it was so clear to me. It became so emotionally clear to me how much it meant to have her, to, to her, and to me to have her there and a part of it. So I'm as sad as it is that she's sick. I think I like to try and find silver linings in anything. And that's certainly one for me that I'd say I hope that anyone listening who's, you know, in our age, who's our age. I hope that your parents are alive and healthy. Um, but I hope that hopefully they are, and that you can still achieve that realization that, you know, this could be something very special to them. And maybe as an as a mental exercise, think about how you would feel if one or both of your parents were sick and whether it would change the way you think about it. Um, yeah, not in like a, I hope that doesn't sound too sad. I just mean in like a way to appreciate. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Because mom... parents can be frustrating too. My mother, <laughs> yeah. my mother especially.
0: <laughs> your mom is an inspiration. Like she's still like running races and like I see in your Instagram and like raising money. That's, that's really inspiring.
2: She's been very sick for five and a half years now, but she's gotten a bit physically weaker. So she's not able to run anymore. And I think one thing that I always thought, mistakenly thought, was that when, when the time came that she was too weak to exercise, that she wouldn't see the point in living anymore. And that because when you're faced with a terminal diagnosis like stage four lung cancer, like she was and is, when you're faced with that and you lose that will to live, Things typically take a pretty hard turn for the worse pretty quickly. Understandably so, right? And I think what's been incredibly inspiring to me is actually not that she was able to do three Ironman triathlons after being diagnosed with stage, core, stage four lung cancer in between radiation and chemo. Not that she was able to climb Mount Aconcagua, the highest mountains outside of Asia, despite being diagnosed. Not that she was able to finish a marathon in every state. No, like not, like not that she was able to bike across the country you know, from California to Florida all these achievements she's done. It's actually that now as she is sort of struggling with this physical weakness, that she hasn't lost this will to live, that she's still swimming in the pool. Even if that swimming swimming is really just paddling or she is still, she has her, her like smart, her, her, her iPhone and her, her like exercise app on her phone. And she gets herself out of bed and walks a couple miles a day, even when she's, barely able to you would think she's barely able to stand and she just like that that is inspiring
0: (laughs) and i can see like how you have that grit i think it comes from her too
2: yeah oh definitely like if i had to credit one person uh for you know most shaping who i am today and how i view the world it would be her for sure not only her i also have an amazing father just to be clear, Um, and four incredible siblings, and we all shape each other, but first and foremost, my mother.
0: Yeah, talking about siblings, you recently had a experience called Race to Survive with your sister. How was that experience? How did you get into that show? Like, that is so cool.
2: Oh my gosh, okay. So Race to Survive Alaska, season one, it's streaming on Peacock, if anyone wants to watch. Uh, it's a crazy. For those who aren't familiar, it's a crazy uh, new adventure survival show. Think like The Amazing Race, but in the Alaskan wilderness, map and compass navigation, eight teams of elite athletes fighting for a half million dollar prize. It was a wild experience. I mean, first of all, there's the physical challenge of starving in the Alaskan wilderness for two months. I mean, that is that that's its own two challenge. months. 2 months. Uh, I mean cuz my sister and I made it very far on the show. So if we had done less well, we would have gone home earlier. Um, the second was the uh you know the the challenge of being out there. I mean even though my sister and I were and are very close. You're in extreme circumstances in intentionally high pressure circumstances obviously cuz it's a TV show where you're every you, you it, it is both critically important that you're good teammates for just for like the sake of good, you know, being a good team, but also you're on national television. And the third dimension is, is, is really that is, is the complexities and ins and outs of of reality television, how it's real, how it's not real. Um, although to be honest, it was a lot more real than I expected. (laughs) I was like, surely it won't be too dangerous Meanwhile, like multiple people, medevacs, people in the ICU, like crazy, crazy dangerous. Yeah. I did not expect to come back and be like, um, yeah, almost died on that reality show. (laughs) Um, but I'm so glad, I'm so glad that Bella, my sister, Bella and I did it together. I'm so glad that we did it again. It was very much pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone and, yeah, and I'm I'm glad we did it, and I'm not sure I would do it again.
0: <laughs> really?
2: Starvation's a pretty terrible feeling, and I don't... Yeah, I don't know if I want to experience that again. When you think of something that's hard, you think of a something where you are, like, actively doing something. I'm going to do a marathon, or do an Ironman, or, you know... Swim across the, uh, you know, the English Channel or something. Deprivation challenges are a whole different beast where you're not actually doing something. They're just taking something away from you. And I didn't really understand this nuance until I did it. And I think what felt frustrating to me at times was it didn't actually feel... Like a challenge in the traditional sense, it didn't feel like I was actually achieving anything. It felt more like just it, just like survival. I don't know. It's sort of hard to describe. Like
0: that's it intense. Didn't,
2: it is intense, but it's also not as. It's not like I felt. Here's what it is: when you uh, when you finish something you've taken on, it's like it's like you've accomplished something.
0: Yeah, that dopamine the dopamine frust- hit.
2: Yes. You don't get that when you're starved. There's no like, it's not like at the end we were like, oh my God, yes. Like we accomplished two months of starvation. Like it, It. I don't know. It, it ended up feeling sort of like, I'm proud of myself. Don't get me wrong, but I'm a lot, I'm proud of like the overall experience. I. I don't view that starvation component, for example, which was a big part of the show race to survive, you know, you're, there's the race component and then there's the survival component like the survival part was half the show um, yeah if that makes sense
0: yeah wow
1: yeah in the thought you mentioned about your company Explorer we do want to transition to Explorer <laughs> so coffee industry is brutally competitive so how what what got you into coffee what were your thought process
2: so it's interesting because the, the I, in some ways, I wish I had thought more about how competitive the coffee industry was when I started the business, but on the flip side, I'm glad I didn't because it was very much a passion project inspired by a real pain point. The The origin for Explorer Cold Brew was needing to choose caffeine levels from my from my cold brew and being really fed up with only having one size fits all when it came to caffeine, just fully loaded caffeine. Like that's it. That's the only option. And you know, other companies other coffee companies out there would have these slogans like death before decaf. I was like, that's so ridiculous. I love a fully loaded cold brew in the morning, but you know what? Sometimes it's nice to have less caffeine in the afternoon or the evening. I still want that delicious beverage, but I don't want to be up all night. And it was that light bulb moment that inspired me to start explore. So we offer now a range of four different caffeine levels. Plus we have a chai concentrate and a dirty chai concentrate. So we have a, we've got flavor syrups and accessories. We have a whole suite of products now, but it's all rooted in this idea that you should be able to choose how much caffeine or as little, how, you know, how, how, as little caffeine as you want. Um, And yeah, that was the, I'm so glad I did this. That said, yeah, the competition is pretty intense. I'm very happy to say that we're still the only coffee company taking this approach, but uh, yeah, I do wish it were a little bit less competitive.
0: Um, So I remember like during COVID when you came up with this idea that um, I was part of your newsletter. So you would send like different emails about, Hey, like I'm looking for a website developer Like, do you guys have any recommendations? Or if you're looking for like a marketing person, you would just ask the email list. And I thought that was genius because when you when I saw on Instagram that you got into Delta, I felt like, oh, wow, like this company that I was following for so long has made it and it just felt like my own victory. So, you know, how did you come up with the idea of an email list before you even came up with the product?
2: You know, I, I'm so glad I did that as well. Uh, I, my, I, I, as you said, I had this email list. I would email every week or every couple of weeks with an update and uh, reflections and 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 asks or questions from the group. I had several hundred people, like 500 people, on that list, and it did feel like a community. Even if you know, it felt like there was sort of mutual engagement and and support. Like it felt like I had uh, people who were interested and also a way to hold myself accountable in terms of how I came up with that. Gosh, I don't remember. It may have been a friend of mine who's a successful entrepreneur named Helen Guo. She started a company called schoolyard snacks and it's been very successful. She and her partner, Dylan, uh, started it, um, very successful entrepreneurs. And Helen was one of my original, she and I went to high school together and she's been a great resource for me from, day one really and i think it may have been her suggestion that i uh that i try to engage people as much as possible um because ultimately you know to even if there's a lot of competition in the space you're not really like this isn't some sort of like top secret ultra patented something like or you know ultra proprietary thing you know I'm building a coffee brand and the benefits far outweigh any potential costs um, of, of building in public in that way. Anyone could sign up for the list. I mean, literally anyone, all you have to do is just enter your email. It was public on the internet. Um, and yeah, I'm so glad. I'm so glad I did that. And I'm very grateful that the vast majority of the folks on the list became my early customers and early adopters of Explorer Cold Brew.
1: The- guest called Steven Sashin, who's the co-founder of Zero Minimalist Shows. And one of the points that he mentioned was that before creating a product, it's always nice to have a wish, you know, like an email list or some sort of a feedback from the from the customers saying what kind of a product they want. So we like just create a wish list or an email list or maybe a fake website and let people buy the product and then put them on the wait listing. Okay. You know, we will ship you, ship these products in like a few weeks for you.
2: Oh yeah. And we did that with Explorer when I was starting Explorer, Yeah. Yeah. I I did exactly that. So in addition to my like newsletter, which was more like a sort of journal diary detailing the journey, I also was running ads for like a, you know, sign up for our wait list for our, and I was, I had a landing page with, Oh my gosh, I probably have this somewhere. I it's going to, it would be, it looks, I'm sure it looks like so basic but we got thousands and thousands of people to sign up for that. And it's one of the ways that you can pretty quickly, easily, and cheaply validate an idea. Now, I will say digital advertising ex- costs have gone way up in the last three years. So when I was first starting Explore, that was sort of the tail end of the uh, digital advertising, the, the good years. Um,
0: so before you even had a product, you kind of wanted to know if there is a market for this product by creating a digital ad for a waitlist.
2: Yeah. And I also was assessing a few different products against one another. I, cold brew was not my only idea. I had a few others and it was actually during the brainstorming process that I was staying up all night because of my caffeine consumption. That's when I had the light bulb moment But I I actually had been working on something completely different. But I had this idea that I really do want to do at some point. And it's a a pre- or post-workout high-protein snack. But it's not a bar. It's not a smoothie. It's an instant mashed potato mix. Think like a cup. Because I think there's a lot of sweet uh, pre- and post-workout snacks out there. But really like a high-protein... Uh, mashed sweet potato or mashed potato mix could be. I mean, first of all, it's not just protein that you need pre or post-workout. You also need carbs, especially post-workout. It's like a misconception. Like you you actually, especially if you're more of an athlete like me, you, you need actually a lot of carbs uh, or a different ratio of protein to carbs. Anyway, I'm, see, I'm saying it now on a podcast because I'm not worried. Like, I would rather somebody listen to the podcast and be like, oh, wait, that's such a cool idea. And then DM me on Instagram or shoot me an email and being like, I thought that was a great idea. Like, let me know if you want to work on this or I would buy that. Or, hey, have you thought about this? Or, hey, that product already exists. Like, you never know. And ultimately, like, what do I think the odds are that someone's going to listen to this and then just go off and do it themselves? I think that when people think that, that's ego talking.
0: Why do you say that?
2: Because I think uh, two things, one, they are, when, when they think that somebody else is just going to sort of steal their idea and run with it and they will lose out, they underrate the challenge of creating something. It is so hard and pretty much anyone and everyone, when you go out and start creating something, you realize that it would be easier with help. So if there were somebody who were so motivated to start this idea to, 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 I called it smart potato snacks, smart potato snacks. If they really wanted to run with it, they would, they would, I'm sure realize if they, if they made any progress that it would be easier if they had a partner. (laughs) And so like number one, like it's easier when you have two people instead of one. Okay. Number two, I think that if you really care about a product being created ultimately, it doesn't matter if you're the one who does it or not. As long as someone creates it, the, like behind any great product, like there should be a genuine need or desire for it. And if you, are, if you would rather your own ego get in the way of that product entering the world, or if you would be the person stopping that, being the the, the barrier between that product coming to life or not by saying, I'm not going to share this idea, even if it could be amazing for folks because I don't want someone else to create it. That is ego. That is you saying I'm putting my own misplaced selfish needs above the reality that this product or idea should be in the world. I think ultimately people just don't appreciate how hard it is to actually bring something to life.
1: It is so hard. Totally. Um, speaking of creation, Kaysen, how did you first craft your, you know, the, the first product in terms of the ingredients or the caffeine content?
2: Well, I, I had the idea and I was like, okay, as much as I know coffee, I, nobody would say, oh, Kason Crane is a coffee expert. And I want to make a really, really good product. I, I need this to, I want this to be exceptional coffee, not just like adequate coffee. And luckily again, silver lining from an unfortunate circumstance, but this was the early days of the pandemic. So we were all sheltering at home. I was in my apartment in Brooklyn and pretty much around the world, everyone else was quarantined at home. And so I thought, well, why don't I reach out to the coffee experts that I respect the most on Instagram? and see if they have any interest in collaborating with me on a project. And so I reached out to about a dozen of my favorite baristas or coffee shop owners from all around the world, from places I traveled or places that I wanted to go you know, places I coffee shops I'd wanted to go and places I was planning to go. And I got a whole bunch of responses and ended up working with three different coffee experts from around the world, one in Indonesia, one in South Africa and one in Lebanon. And, They each represented different backgrounds, different areas of expertise, but brought perspective, helped me source, taste test, iterate on these early iterations of the concentrates and really crafted them into what they are, what they ended up becoming. Uh, And I really only could have done that uh, because everyone was, I mean, I was compensating them for their opinion, their time, of course. And at a time when... Everyone's coffee shops were shut down. It, it was sort of a, a no-brainer. They had the time. Um, you know, I remember, I'll never forget David, uh, who's our incredible tastemaker from South Africa. He was saying, look, like any, like all of the money from this engagement that you're paying me, I'm putting straight into my, the employees of my cafe because it's is South Africa and there's like there, the social services system is not working. These people are massively struggling. And he's like, I will be fine but they need every penny they can get. And it was, you know, I, and that was so obviously so generous of him and an uh, incredible gesture, but that, that was the environment. So it was silver lining was we were able to create this beautiful, uh, this beautiful product, this delicious product um, in part, because everyone was at home.
0: Were you like also working full time while you were building your company?
2: Yes, I did have a job. However, because of the pandemic, uh, I was working as a consultant and there were, it was just a, there was a lot in flux at the time. And even like in addition to the, the work flux, I also, I mean, at the time I did have a lot of free time because it's, it is, it's only been a few years, but it is sort of crazy to think about like, we, we couldn't leave the apartment. And I mean, the funny thing is I maybe if I actually had any talents, like if I could play the piano or if I could sing, or if I could write poetry, like maybe I would have done those things and been perfectly fine, but I don't have any of those talents. So I had to think of something new to do to spend that time so that I wouldn't go crazy. And you know, like, people picked up different hobbies. There was that whole bread making thing when people were baking bread. Like for me, that was Explorer. So it's, that advice was pretty specific. That, like, that experience was more specific to the crazy time in the you know in world history that we were living in during that early COVID uh, time, I'd say now I totally, it, it's a very challenging thing. I'd say, be very clear with yourself about what you can do, what you can achieve while you're in your job and what you can't. And I think segmenting it like that, like, okay, so what could you do? You could brainstorm ideas. You could maybe come up with some branding concepts. You could do some market research. You can come up with these like tangible, like, okay, I've done this, I've done this and this try and basically get to a business plan, a a very fleshed out business plan. I think that's doable while having a full-time job. It might take a while. Another thing you can do is like, you can maybe test, depending on what your product is, like you can test basic iterations in your own kitchen. You don't need to like hire a co-packer or, you know, go out and and do a full-scale production run. I'd say once you shift to the stage of, okay, I'm gonna like, Oh, another thing you can do is what we talked about before was putting the content, make a simple one pager, do that like right off the bat, do it with every idea you have. It'll take a few hours, put a one, one page website out there and just collect, collect emails, collect, put it up, put it, put a few hundred bucks on, on social media ads, just trying to drive email signups and see what you get. Anyway, all of that you can do with a job, I'd say. Once you get to the point where you've picked your idea, you feel really strong, you feel like you've validated your assumptions, validate the economics, validate the unit economics um, and the market research, then I think you have to start thinking like, okay, does it make sense to leave the job? Or take, or look, some, some jobs will let you take a leave of absence. I ended up doing that from my consulting job. I ended up taking a few months as a leave of absence where I could have gone back and I decided not to decided to go explore full time. I like, don't just, you don't necessarily need to just jump right in the deep end and quit your job. Like employers also don't want to lose talented employees. So I would say more often than not, people don't consider the possibility that there's a, that there's a middle, middle ground solution, a three-month sabbatical or a six-month sabbatical or something.
0: At what point did you realize that, okay, I got to do this full-time? Like, At what point in your um, like process of building this company?
2: Well, it, uh, basically, I was on my leave of absence and we launched the product with uh, the very first iteration of our product with paying customers for the first time. And it was right around the time that my leave of absence was ending. So there was a very clear, well, on the front end, there was a very clear deadline. Like I need people to start buying this product before I, before I leave. Cause I just want to make sure that people actually will buy it. And then on the other, you know, so there, that was a, a helpful deadline. Um, on the other hand, there was a very real, like, Oh, I need to either go back to the job or not. Um, and I need to make that decision for myself. And, yeah, so that was, it was about, it was just after we launched. And it, by the way, I didn't decide, I think, don't misinterpret what I'm saying is, um, I didn't decide to stick with Explore because the launch had gone really well. In fact, the launch did not go super well. I actually chose to stick with Explore despite the fact that the launch had only gone so-so. And I think that, uh, yeah, it's easy to, sort of jump ship to something when you feel like you're on, you know, when you're on the, like the better ship, uh, you know, jumping from one ship to another, but it wasn't, it actually wasn't that. It was that I realized that I was just too passionate about bringing this to life and that ultimately I would be happier running explore cold brew than I would be going back to my consulting gig. And that it wasn't about spending another couple months on the project or hitting some other inflection point. I just fundamentally, I just fundamentally liked it a lot more. <laughs> and I, to be clear, had a, an amazing experience in consulting. It, it's a great way to learn a lot about a lot of different industries, problems, types of businesses. But I just, it was this incredible moment of, I, I'm so grateful that I had this chance to discover what I'm really passionate about.
1: You really like your branding? The logo. Thank you. you know, the website as well.
2: So how did you rebrand rebranded. Up with that? Yeah. So we, yeah. We, yeah. we Saw introduced that. our new branding in in April of this year. And I think it's a huge improvement. I mean, so this I have a bottle. It's in our legacy branding here for folks who are watching. So this is what it looked like originally. And I I'm proud of how far this branding, which like I designed myself and I'm not a graphic designer, I'm very proud of how far we got it. I mean, seven uh, figures of business uh some figures of sales on that legacy branding that i did in canva you know like it really um, oh yeah oh yeah
0: you did it in canva
2: yeah this is we're living in a pretty incredible time i'm not saying that there's no costs associated with starting a business there definitely are there's both cost and opportunity cost but it has never been the barrier to entry has never been lower in history like Canva, tools like Canva, like Shopify, like that it, it is remarkable how quickly and relatively inexpensively it is. Uh, re- relatively inexpensive is to start a business, a cpg business.
0: I went to your Amazon site and it's beautifully done. And I mean, I've been following you for like some time, so I was curious, like the copywriting, the writing, the advertisements, is it all you or how did you come up with all of that?
2: So over time, the team has grown, uh, obviously for a long time, it was just me for about a year and a half. It was literally just me. Um, and now I have a few amazing folks who help me out. Obviously the new branding that we have that you currently see on our website that I, uh, we developed in partnership with an amazing company called Truffle. Raphael Ferrisad is just a branding genius. And we worked very closely with him over a long period of time to develop a new brand identity, visual identity that better reflected the spirit of what we were trying to achieve and the spirit of the company. So I'm really proud of that. Um, but you know, on the copywriting point, a lot of that is my writing from when I first launched the business. I mean, the, the actual product and spirit hasn't changed much. And yeah, actually, I would guess like a a lot of it is pretty close or identical to the copywriting we we launched with two and a half years ago.
0: I want to dive deeper into it. So for someone who's thinking of starting a business and if they want to learn how to be a better copywriter or how to have an understanding of how Facebook advertisements or Instagram advertisements work. Like what books or what did you do in that year and a half that made you create a seven-figure business?
2: I didn't read any books. I didn't listen to any podcasts. I just did it. And I think that it's going to sound extreme, but the biggest barrier that folks have to starting a business is just not starting it that is the hardest step and how did i learn how did i learn and improve copywriting i wrote a first draft and then i went back and i edited and i and i had other people read it and give me comments of course but you could spend Years, not just one year and a half. You could spend ten years reading all the books, reading all the resources, taking master classes, listening to podcasts to become a better copywriter or a better UX or UI designer or things like that. Honestly, I don't know if the benefits outweigh the cost. Mostly, the, the like the op- the time cost, the opportunity cost of just sitting down at your computer and opening up a Shopify account, making a Shopify store adding in, like you, you can get mock-ups of your product. If you have just like a basic, basic idea, basic design, you can use tools like Fiverr or Upwork to get very high quality mock-ups quickly. You can have that one page Shopify store up in literally hours. And AI, by the way, is only Increasing and like very quickly increasing the capabilities there from an image standpoint, from a copy standpoint, copywriting standpoint. I'm not saying like outsource it all to ChatGPT, <laughs> but you know <laughs> it's only making it easier. <laughs> yeah. And especially when it comes to just drafting, honestly, now if you're if you're nervous draft, have ChatGPT. Why not have it draft something just to get that those those wheels turning? Now I still think you know you have to ultimately put your own spin on it. You know. it it has to come from the heart. I think people can still tell when something is written by a computer versus written by uh, a human. But um, I think, yeah, I I would, instead of, I'm sure that that other folks on your podcast have recommended other resources and I'm not actually saying to not read any of them, but instead of recommending anything, I, I would recommend take the time you would spend to read it and just try doing it yourself. You will learn a lot from just trying.
1: Explorer recently got into a partnership with Delta to solve Explorer in, in, in the flight. So how did you go about getting the deal? What was the process like?
2: Well, so with Delta, I think it's one of those honestly rare moments when you start a business that um, you get lucky or that you feel like karma, like you feel like all of your hard work has just like paid off in some magical way. Because Delta discovered the product completely organically, and they reached out to me. When they first emailed me, I thought it was, like, one of those Nigerian prince scams. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. I I was like, there's no way this is real. Like, no way. Like, or maybe it's from their, like, in-flight magazine, and they're looking for some paid advertisement thing. And it was not that. Uh, And so the universe can work in crazy ways. It can conspire in our favor, even if as a founder, it often feels like it's conspiring against us. And those moments again are rarer than I'd like them to be, but you do have to savor them when they come around. And yeah, so I I wish I could give you the whole rundown of our, you know, pitching and selling process and how we made that happen. But ultimately it was just creating a product that we were really proud of. And Having an early uh, an early set of customers and early adopters who wanted to send the product to their friends, and and that is you know Delta picked up the product when it was with the original branding, the legacy branding, um, and now of course we have our like beautiful new branding, uh, but it it was a real vote of confidence for us and for the product. Uh,
0: Did they tell you how they found you initially?
2: Yeah, somebody sent our product. Was, someone sent our product as a gift to a senior executive at Delta, and the executive loved it and thought it'd be a great fit and passed it along to the right team. And then they reached out and one thing led to another.
1: Wow. That, that is amazing. I've seen a bunch of your TED Talks and other you know, conversation online. And one thing that you constantly mention is is how fortunate and how lucky you are. So we, a few, few weeks ago, we spoke to this this New York based selling author called Gay Hendricks. Um, he has his book called Big Leb and a few other books like Conscious Luck. In, in, in the book, Conscious Luck, he speaks that luck is something that we create. It doesn't happen to us. So the more we think we are lucky, the more it happens to us.
2: Yeah, yes. I think, yeah, I, I, there is something to that. Um, I would say at times I wish I were a little luckier and I'm certainly working hard to put myself in positions where I can get lucky, but, um, it is this balance of, there is a randomness to it. It's not, I don't, I think to say something like, oh, luck is just people putting themselves in the right position for the right things to happen I think there's probably people listening to this podcast who think, who believe they're doing that and who are doing that. And you know what? They haven't gotten lucky yet. And sometimes I feel like that with my business. I'm like, I, the, you know, our Delta deal was amazing, but that, that alone does not, is not enough right to, to make this business a sustainable success. And there are times when I I just feel like, you know, all nighter after all nighter, I'm like, is this like, why am I not getting lucky? So I would say I can't, I I don't believe that I have, you know, I, I, I don't want to question his advice. I do believe that you can put yourself in a position to get lucky, but I don't want for anyone listening. I don't want them to be discouraged if they haven't, that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. There is still a randomness element.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, I also wanted to ask like a lot of people don't start a business because, you know, financials and they are like not able to financially, uh, when you started, like how much of it was like a bootstrap? And at what point, like, did you realize like you might need investors?
2: So I bootstrapped for the whole ideation period. And then for the first four months after we launched our product, and I was able because of a few different components, like the nature of the product that I was working on. Um, I was able to do a small run of it. So the costs were not crazy. I was able to valid- validate the idea with an actual production run um, because it was small. That's not the case for everything. I think, to my earlier point, number one, there is a lot of that early ideation, brainstorming, pressure testing, uh, market research that you can do contemporaneously with having a job. No brainer. Number two, I think really look into the, the, you know, leave of absence concept as a way to, you know, most people, if you ask them, I would say like most people who are thinking about starting a business, obviously this isn't everyone I'm talking about, uh, you know, a, folks who already obviously have a level of privilege and, and resources to even consider this. And I, I just want to be fully, obviously that's not everyone. I wish it were, but that's not everyone. But if you're in that position, like taking that leave of absence while still maintaining that longer term job security, I think is, is a really, like if you can budget and, and sort of save up enough to make sure you don't need your, uh, you know, your salary for that time period, I think that is a really interesting model for folks. And the third I'd say is like, be really, I mentioned the unit economics before, like really, really, really try and nail the unit economics and then add additional buffer because it always is more expensive than you think. And ultimately if you're able to have a high enough margin product with enough demand, there will be appetite. Like if you can nail those two things, you have a business. It might not be a billion dollar business, but you can make a business. But if you don't have any demand and you've got a high margin product, obviously it's not gonna work. And if you've got a lot of demand, but the product isn't high enough margin, it's also not gonna work. So just, assessing, finding a way to validate those two things before you take the big leap, really important. And again, like it's not even about talking to investors. Like if you have those two things, investors will come. If you want them to come, they will come.
0: (laughs) So they usually like approached you rather than you like trying to find investors.
2: No, I did. I did reach out and, and start fundraising and and solicit uh, funding. And I've done two rounds of funding so far, but I'd say like don't blindly go into that model. I think like there's it's, it just really depends on what you're starting. And yeah, it's almost, it's too broad. It's too broad. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. If you can like look back and give advice to yourself three years ago, like what advice would you give?
2: Well, that's really tough. I think, I know what it would be. It would be, don't rely on expert advice. Question it. Take it with a grain of salt. And really, really, really second guess uh, your assumptions. Everything from taking outside capital. For I did not really think about the longer term repercussions or consequences of taking outside Venture capital money as much as I should have. I obviously did to some degree, but I didn't really stop and think: does this make sense? And not just make sense for me, does it make sense for them? Does it make sense for them to invest in a beverage brand? Because as much as I want them to invest in my beverage brand, if they end up being disappointed by the outcome, that's also that's a that's also a bad end result. And you know, it's not just about the end result for you. Their end result also matters. Um, and I think broadly, like there's a lot of people who are you know, there's a lot of charlatans out there. Don't believe everything you read on Twitter. I'm serious. Don't believe everything you read on Twitter. <laughs> and no, really, um, it's sort of crazy some of the stuff I see out there. Uh, it can give it a very false impression of what it's like to run a business to start a business. Um, So, yeah, that's the advice.
1: Uh, Thanks, Kason, for your time. Thank you. If people want to reach out to you, where can they find you?
2: Uh, You can find me on Instagram at Kason Crane, C-A-S-O-N-C-R-A-N-E. You can shoot me a DM or you can email me, Kason, C-A-S-O-N, at explorercoldbrew.com. Either one works. And, yeah, thank you so much for having me on.